Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 27 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have one of my youth physical literacy idols, uh, Brett Flicker. How are you doing today, Brett? I'm doing great. So I first came across your work um, on the perceptual motor skills, but we'll dig into that in a little bit. The first uh, question I have for all my guests is, why do you do what you do? And that that is a great question. And that's, you know, that was that's something that that I had to really sit and stop and, and formulate in the, the onset of when we started SpiderFit and a lot of the other initiatives. Because my overall mission in life is to for my family and I to live extraordinary by helping others do the same. And when, when I really look and I consider you know, my story, I was an overweight kid and it wasn't because my parents, you know, my parents had a culture of wellness at home. I just, you know, couldn't necessarily make the right decisions. And I, I had some genetic things that kept me overweight, but when I discovered that I could have some autonomy over my health, you know, I was able to lose a lot of weight. I uh, started running. I just started. I just was like, I was, I don't know, 11 years old. And I was like, I'm just going to start running. I just started doing it like Forrest Gump. And I was able to, I, you know, I lost weight, but then it was like, I saw that I had control over other things in my life as well. And I saw that it wasn't like, it, it's sort of what Carol Dweck ta- talks about that growth mindset versus a, a fixed mindset. I realized, wow, I can change my station in any area, any area of life. I can, uh, grow mentally. I can grow emotionally. I can do any of these different things. And, and so in that impact in my life in so many different ways and, and, and really pushing it into my career, my personal life, and just keeping this mindset of, yeah, I can do anything. Like I can learn something. I can do these different things. It was so powerful for me that I just feel compelled that my way of making children's lives extraordinary uh, is to sort of share that in a, a child-friendly way and an engaging way to children to get them to realize at a young age that they do have autonomy over uh, whether it's their health, how they feel, how they think, how they act, and and, and giving kids that power um, to realize then makes them healthy adults. So, you know, our mission with, with Spider-Fit Kids is to create a future of happy, healthy, active young athletes for life. And that's really, you know, that's what we stay committed to. I absolutely love that. Um, we we're chatting uh, briefly off air about what we've done in uh, previous parts of our career. Now, I've heard you speak on uh, other podcasts about working with uh, older athletes or more elite athletes. Um, so one of the questions I have is uh, why why children rather than, for example, your uh, stereotypical elite athletes or college athletes? Well, so I, I started my career, I, I worked with college athletes when I was at university, and then I went on to be a coach at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in San Diego. That's actually, that's where I live now, and that's what brought me down here. I was a live-in coach for speed and strength. So prior to the Sydney Olympics, I worked with these world-class athletes. It was an amazing part of my career, and, and it was a great resume builder, and I left there, and I joined Todd Durkin, uh, who was just beginning his facility down here in San Diego, and I said that I've I would like to work with, you know, my experiences working with athletes and kids. And we started working with we, we, some of the local football, you know, American football players that were down here. We started working with them. But I, I realized that, boy, I work with these pro athletes 
these high level athletes and it's, it's good for my resume, but my, my heart was drawn. My soul was drawn to working with these kids. And, and at the time when I was young, my ego was too big for me to really truly be at peace with that because I was like, that's, that's suicide for your career, Brett. You know, if you work with kids, you're getting to work with these high profile athletes, that's career suicide. If you just give that up to work with kids. And I got a lot of positive things working with the pro athletes, but I'll tell you in working with the world-class athletes, when they would hit a performance ceiling, one of the steps that we would take was often we would deconstruct their development. And so all of a sudden we're having world-class sprinters or world-class jumpers or throwers or world-class athletes in other sports. They're having to crawl or roll or do basic skills that they pretty much should have been doing their whole training career. We would have to deconstruct movement down to these simplest things that children do in order to rebuild a new physical capacity. And that was really interesting to me. And I started to think, geez, how important, like if this has happened to world-class athletes, they're hitting this performance ceiling because they didn't have these basic skills. What if I could run to the other end of the developmental continuum with this knowledge, kind of like I had a time machine from the future going back to the past and saying, hey, let's focus on these things. If we want kids to have the greatest opportunity to be active and athletic for life, let's go back to these things and we can actually build them from the get-go so they don't hit these performance ceilings, whether they're performance ceilings involved with pro sports or college sports, or just, you know, can they go run 10 kilometers without getting injured when they're 30 years old or, or whatever it is. So that's what really brought me back. And then you know, working with kids, it's just the, the appreciation and the relationship and the spirit that they have is just a, it's a source of energy every day. And, and I, I worked with some, some amazing professional athletes, but there was also the, the sense of entitlement and there was some negative interactions too, that I just felt like I didn't feel that I was really contributing. They were tremendously genetically gifted. And I just didn't feel with my approach to what I was doing and my sense of purpose and what I was doing, I didn't feel I was contributing as much there as I could. And, and I finally got to a point in my career where I was like, I don't need the, that resume piece as much anymore. And I need to follow my heart because that's where the, the best opportunities are going to come for everyone. And that's when I you know, really went the route of spider fit. And I'm, to this day, I'm very happy I did that. And I feel very fulfilled. And one of the things that um, I've heard you speak about uh, in your live PE classes, I've heard Shane Fitzgibbon uh, talk about in a previous podcast, and you just alluded to it there in terms of feeling like you're contributing. Um, so when I speak with, for example, parents or coaches um, about strength conditioning for youth athletes or even um, just physical literacy for kids, and they'll think, oh, this sounds like a long-term athletic development program. I just want my kid, like, they're not going to be a sports person. But one thing I love about your work is the way you expand it out beyond just the physical. Um, what things, firstly, what other things outside of the physical are important to you in your sessions? And the second part of that question is, how do you go about developing those in children, if that question makes sense? Yeah, well, anytime part of our work with, with kids or adults is, is in being strength and conditioning coaches, we do have to understand uh, just to make it relevant. You know, we know it's important. We have the education and, and quite frankly, our own individual stories that, that took us into this profession 
have given us a level of interest and commitment and passion towards strength and conditioning that's unmatched by the rest of society. Even our athletes don't have the, the level of interest in strength and conditioning that, that we do. But when we, when we work with kids and, and work with adults, we need to understand what goes on outside of the physical piece of it. We need, because a lot of the times, you know, if parents come to us, yeah, it's one thing, you know, to your point, yeah, you know, they're not gonna be an athlete someday. They just need to move. Well, for us to understand, well, yes, but movement drives, you know, even structures, development of structures within the brain. You know, one of the biggest uh, drivers of, of neuroplasticity is movement, is physical activity. And the growth of the brain and the expansion of, of motor abilities happen in conjunction with one another. They complement one another. So the more, especially when they're young, the more movement they do, the, the more their brain responds by growing different centers of the brain. So in understanding the impact of, let's say, aerobic exercise on uh, the size of the hippocampus in the brain, you know, aerobic exercise increases the size of the hippocampus with, um, with exercise, when exercise becomes complex, then we start to see an increase in uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor in the cerebellum. And so then we start to see um, some improvements in limbic system, which is behavior and emotional regulation. We start to see when we have kids interact, uh, we see improvements in social behavior. And so we can look at this and like say, how many calories are they burning and what, or we can stop and say, wait a minute. Uh, when we, when we do these exercises, we're accomplishing this. So I don't need to tell the kids that I don't need to say, okay, kids, now we are going to do something that you're crossing your, your, uh, theoretical midline. So now this is going to, uh, increase the, the processing speed of information between the two hemispheres of your brain. I don't have to tell kids that. I, but when I'm designing my program, I'm just like, yeah, this is going to get their heart rate up or whatever, but that's not my first place I go. The first place is like, what do these kids need? Let's engage their brains. Let's engage their bodies. Let's do all these different things. Let kids have a good time with it. They don't need to know, but if a parent wants to know what's going on or a coach wants to know what's going on, I'm going to have more to, to share with them from my level of understanding than just, yeah, well, they're exercising and, you know, lunges are good. See, they're doing lunges. It, it, it needs to go beyond that. And that, so that's really the, where we come from. That was important to me. The onset of spider fit is we need to make exercise relevant beyond just the sake of exercise. Because if we think that a boot camp model of exercise is going to somehow bring society around to how important exercise is for the overall well-being of kids, that's a failed model. Because that's a calorie in calorie out model. It's very myopic. If we, if our model is based on how exercise for youth is at the center of a holistic approach to overall healthcare, overall health management, overall health improvement, mental health, emotional health, physical health, all of a sudden, how are you going to argue with that? If you're a parent or a school administrator or a, a, a some other organization, you can't you can't say that you don't have time to improve kids' mental health. You just can't say that. And so it's just making a, a much more relevant, but it's as coaches, it's understanding what we're trying to do, but we don't need to necessarily explain it to the kids. Let the kids have fun with it, but we should understand what's going on, not just physically, but what's going on at the core of human behavior at the brain. There's again, so many things that leapt off the page there, but um going to be a bit selfish and ask a bit of a um, personal question just because something I see that comes up a lot in uh, PE circles and that's to do with uh, whenever fitness comes on the curriculum and 
again, not to say that this is uh, wrong, but I just like your uh, thoughts on it. So you mentioned calories burn. Another thing you said about, for example, is doing lunges or alluding to doing lots of repetitions. And what I see a lot with fitness games is it will be stuff like um, stuff that will be um, lauded as good practice will be, I don't know, like I've seen teachers print off a McDonald's menu and the aim of the lesson will be, can you burn the number of calories in a cheeseburger or uh, a sort of rep, olympics type thing where it's like right your group have got 100 reps of this to do divide it between your group and again not to say it's it's bad because you need somewhere to start but i'm just intrigued as to how you would deliver a fitness lesson in a school setting where um there does have to be learning objectives and i agree with you that just getting sweaty our thinking should move beyond that just want your intrigue on your thoughts on that yeah, I think it's to your point, like I wouldn't look at that anytime we're asking kids to, oh, it's let's see if you can burn 400 calories or let's see if you can do 100 push ups. Those are all benchmarks, they're goals, they're, they give the kids some sort of quantifiable data. It's good. I mean, look at, look at what things like fitness trackers and things have done for the conversation about health within the general population. It's, it's been good. You know, people are tracking things, it's the, now it's objective. But I think that if, if we lead with that, if we lead with that, so if we lead with the intention of exercise with kids is just burn more calories and get more reps and, and do all these, if, if that's our, our leading model, I think that there's problems with that because unfortunately we've already created this kind of large population of kids where that is going to be very not appealing for because they're over their strength to weight ratio is very poor. They're deconditioned, they're overweight. And so how are those kids going to do when it comes to a push-up contest or a jump? They're not going to do well. And so, and, and that's not me being like, oh, well, no one should win. And no, that's just me being like, why are we going to frustrate 90% of the class? You know, and not to say, and I think those things should be used as tools, but that shouldn't be the primary tool. The primary tool should be, I would rather have a contest to see it. Let's see if the whole class can do a perfect push-up. You know, let's let's see if you know next week. You know, that's that's where we've set the, our criteria for progression within the Spider Fit model. You know, we call it the powerful play model. Is instead of saying, "Hey, can you do fifty push-ups?" It's, "Can you do a push-up?" And where are you at in that continuum? Because if if you can't do a push-up, well, I don't really care how many you know, whatever you were doing right now, I don't care how many of those you can do because that doesn't even replicate what a pushup is. I would rather say, Hey, let's do a bunch of games and activities and drills that get you able to do a movement. And the same applies for all the different skills. And yes, I think you need to have like an Olympics day or uh, these novelty situations where let's, let's all burn the calories of a burger and it's a big circuit and the kid's going to do that. That's an important part of the whole thing. And the kids get into it. But again, if we lead with that, it's going to lose value to everyone. It just is because too many kids are, are going to be marginalized, unfortunately, because of, I mean, ideally, yeah, you just show up and say, kids, let's go nuts. Let's burn a thousand calories. Let's all, you're just, let's work out. Let's be a bunch of Roman gladiators. I mean, that would be cool if you just, that's not the society we live in right now. 30% of the kids that come into a classroom are going to be overweight of almost 20 of them are going to be considered obese. 
like like morbid like like not just overweight but like medically concerned overweight with medical concern so 30 year class already is going to poor strength to weight ratio all these different things so we have to we have to address that and then we got to get back to giving them some confidence with movement instead of just volume give them some competence you know competence and confidence and then we can build volume it's almost like we have to revamp the model and then build volume and all those things back into it it's funny because um again uh rob anderson alluded to it in the uh podcast that you mentioned uh, uh sorry on the podcast you were on and he said that pe teachers who might be looking at this movement model or this physical literacy model thinking great but i was never taught this i was taught rules of sport but uh, a couple of things you mentioned there which i loved um which is similar themes from my podcast with Ross Williams. And he mentioned that I asked him why he feels the sport model is potentially outdated. And he said, the issue is that with today's kids, a lot of them are marginalized because as you mentioned, um, you've got kids who, I don't know, uh, poor strength to body weight ratio. So then any rep space tasks is going to be inherently more difficult. Uh, Kids who are lacking confidence. And now you're, I don't know, throwing a ball at them and asking someone to charge them in rugby. And as you said, you, you're setting kids up to fail, which is my argument against the old school thinking up, oh, but we've always done the sport-based model. So kids need to adapt to us rather than thinking, yeah. how do we adapt to them? Well, in, in the States, and I'm sure that it might be a little bit different, but in the States, sports have been largely pri- uh, privatized into these for-profit organizations. And so our kids when they enter, when they play soccer or basketball or whatever they do, there's some community organizations where they get, but that's usually like up until they're about six years old. After that, as a parent, you're selecting which organization are you going to pay a lot of money for your kid to, to be a part of. And so, but that is how I think the, the data suggests that almost 65% of American youth 65% of the overall, as many youth there are in America, 65% of them enter one of these sports programs. Um, and, and granted, they're not all super expensive. You know, some of them are still community-based, but they enter a sport program. So th- those numbers are like double and triple of what they used to be when PE was really, the pedagogies for physical education were really being formed. So now these kids are getting a lot of sports um, introduction to sport and, and all these different things in the private, in the private sector. So a lot of parents are looking at physical education and saying, ah, physical education is, is, uh, it's, I don't need a PE teacher who doesn't know that much about basketball, teaching my kid about basketball. They're going to a basketball coach now. And so there's then been this decrease in valuing the sport model within physical education because it's so big in the private market. So that's another challenge we're having here in the United States in that parents like, my kid goes to a soccer coach. I don't care if they're playing soccer in PE. They're, they're, it's going to mess up their soccer game if they play in PE. You know, it's it's sloppy. It's not good for them. So it's going to mess it up, which is so ridiculous. To, that's not a good thought, but that's the reality of the marketplace. And so I think it's it's readjusting. It's important for all physical education to sort of readjust and say, where are the biggest needs right now? And not kicking out sport altogether. No, not all sport. The sport should be part of PE, but again, what are we leading with versus what is an accessory? And, and sports should probably be uh, an accessory um, because originally an original physical education pedagogy, it was sports were supposed to be introduced after, I wouldn't say mastery is the word, but after 
all the fundamental movement skills and basic levels of fitness and all these things have been pretty well established. And I think that we could agree that most kids by the age of what they recommend, you know, the onset of sports introduction, when they're reaching that level, a very small percentage of kids have a sound toolbox of fundamental movement skill. And even if they do to our point earlier about, okay, you can do a push-up, but now let's look at, do you have the capacity you, know, you can do the skill now, great, but what's your physical capacity like within that skill? And even if they can do it, their physical capacity is low. And so sports are not going to be an enjoyable experience. So again, what can we do for their physical capacity and competence that we should lead with capacity and competence and then use sport and those other things as accessories to reinforce capacity and confidence. And you mentioned a brilliant point there, because I think I'm still at a point in my sort of career where I'm trying to articulate it as, as well as what you've done there. So when I say, for example, I think the sport model is not what we should be doing. What I don't mean is get rid of sport, but yeah. as you've, as you've alluded to, uh, it's probably the wrong thing to lead with. I mean, even uh, the other day I had uh, uh, children in my class saying, Oh, when could we play again? Play again. And we'd played a conditioned game of dodgeball. And all I had, the only condition I put on it was that the three pupils from each team who were better throwers were restricted to a throwing area, which meant that they were more likely to get hit with the ball. So had to dodge better, uh, had to throw a further distance because they were higher ability. Yeah. And I still had people question, oh, when can we play a proper game? And I explained in the proper game, if you get hit, you sit out. And the kids who are most likely to get hit are the ones who haven't got those skills. So therefore the kids that need the most experience then get the least experience. Mm -hmm. And even then the uh, pupil in question sort of nodded and agreed, but I could tell she still wanted to be like, can we play the proper game? Yeah. And I'm like, this is, we're not just sort of fighting curriculums that have been in place for years, but we're also fighting what kids have been brought up with. Yeah. Well, in the States, then we're taken to the next level and we can't even play dodgeball here anymore because of they're afraid the kids might get hit with the ball. Like, so it's, it, we've taken it so far that like, so the games, like the, the limited amount, you know, kids are not supposed to run at recess because it's dangerous in the playground. Uh, they're not, there's so many things that have been put in that it's like that, you know, physical education teachers are handcuffed in a lot of different ways as well. So even games like, like dodgeball, they can't play it. And, and so then it's like, okay, what game is inclusive enough and what can we, so there are, there's so many games that are inclusive that the kids forget that they're conditioning, you know, they forget <laughs> that they're doing these skills. And those are, those are great ones. And even some of the, the kind of the sport-based games that aren't the familiar sport. I mean, I think that you're, there's a difference between playing soccer or a sport sort of like soccer, but it's different criteria. So the kids get out of the fixed mindset of what they're supposed to do in soccer and they, they're, you know, or their whatever their, their believed ability level is, and they can expand their physical skills and their interactions with the other kids and things like that. Yeah. And funny enough, that's another thing that I've stolen from you over the years. Uh, I think I remember you reading an article or, um, listening to one of your podcasts where you said, for example, in a baseball warm-up, you'll roll out the football or the soccer ball just to get the brain talking yep. to the feet. Um, how do you deal with parents? Cause you mentioned the private sector in the States. Yeah. How do you deal? I'm sure you've probably had experience. How do you deal with parents being like, Oh, but 
I'm paying for my child to learn soccer and you've got them, I don't know, practicing baseball or, or throwing a ball yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Well, anytime early in my career, that was a big problem because it was, you know, I had to go to anyone who would take me in. I was, I was trying to pay rent and, but now I think that one thing that any coach could do. And, and one thing that um, I've learned to do is before I enter a situation, particularly in the private sector, but also in the public sector, if I'm going into a school is I, I make sure that, that everyone understands what the approach is. Um, the parents will usually get something ahead of time that explains, you know, what we're doing. Uh, coaches, you know, the coach will, the coach is the one inviting me. So usually the coach knows, you know, what the deal is, but I just try to do some pre-education because if you just show up and they're expecting soccer practice and if they're expecting soccer practice, they're going to see a soccer practice, but they're also going to see some of these other things. It's important that they know ahead of time, you know, what's coming. And then I, a quick debrief afterwards, and it's just educating and educating in a relevant way. You know, if, if I get a debrief with parents, it needs to be less than five minutes. Um, you know, if I send them some sort of uh, material, it needs to be one-sided, bulleted, large font. And they're not going to, they're not going to pay attention any more than that. If I send an email ahead of time, it needs to have just these big bulleted things. Like, so it's just sort of pre-educating them. And then, you know, answering questions and, and, but then to, to the point too, of, I don't want to go rogue and they, they, they came to a soccer practice and they don't do any soccer. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's poor coaching. That's, that's poor. Uh, it's just, just poor marketing. It's poor everything. So the, what they should see is they'll just see some fringe things during the warm up and maybe during the cool down and, Cause that, and that's where I encourage coaches to, to exercise some of these more uh, diversified physical skills. If you're coaching a sport, you're going to warm up anyway. And usually your warm up isn't that tactical. Usually your warm up's pretty general. So you already got that time built in. So let's just make that time better. And then you got time towards the end where it's usually some sort of conditioning, uh, where it's more open to, it's not exactly tactical either. It's just sort of more general in nature. So we got those box ends on either end of a, even a very specific sports practice. So all I'm recommending is let's do some more proactive things in those box ends and then stick to your tactical work during, just understand some general concepts during tactical work, but let's put some things on the end. And most of the time when I've taken that model, coaches, parents, they really haven't, had that much of an issue. It, it makes sense to them and it doesn't take away from their expectation. It actually you know, reinforces a positive expectation. Yeah. And it, it's funny just uh, listening to um, just give an overview of what that might look like in the context of the session. And as I said earlier, a lot of people think when you come in with these movement drills or skills that all of a sudden, oh, we're not, we're not going to kick a ball today. Yeah, it's um, going to be a circus of some sort. Yeah, but it, it's funny because I've seen a lot of job roles for PE teachers and it'll say something like uh, basketball level three coach or whatever is preferred. And I'm like, it's ironic that there's like this almost elitist model within a PE setup where a lot of kids can't, for example, dribble the ball and keep their eyes facing forwards. And it's like, you don't need this international level coach. You need someone who can engage the kids and get them doing the basics well well and i even look at that because i was that's what i looked at and that's what I, that was important to me before i had a child and now i got a seven-year-old 
And now, boy, talk about perspective on coaching. So now I'm paying money for her to be with coaches and, and I'm taking time, money, and energy by my most, as an adult, time, money, and energy, those are my most limited currencies. So those, I have those, all three of those are my most limited currency. So now I have to decide how, what I'm going to spend those currencies on. Obviously my daughter is going to command, you know, where I spend, but I look at some of the coaches that I'm going to expend to where am I willing to spend? And I've learned, I look at their resume. Hey, that's great. They've worked with this and that, but what I really care about is do they talk to my child when, when we show up to meet them, are they talking to me or are they talking to my child? Are they, uh, when, when are they listening to my child? So are they even like, if my daughter says something, is he listening and responding? Or is he just probably like, yeah, that's a kid talking. I'm, I'm talking to you. And, you know, do him or her, when they do things, are they adapting them to, to kids? Are they able to, to quickly adapt up or down? These are the things I'm looking for. Their resume is great. And their resume might, you know, catch my eye. But what I care about as a parent is what is the interaction? What does the interaction look like? Is, is my daughter getting, is she sweating? Is she smiling? Is she getting smarter? You know, those three S's. Then as a parent, that's what, that's what I want to see. Now, getting smarter, that means, you know, is she learning the skill that, that we're there to learn? If she's sweating and smiling, that's great. And that works up until about she's six. But after that, it's like, okay, you need to be, I want to see some, you need to be learning the skill. But if she's just learning the skill and she's not sweating, so they're just kind of standing there and just doing these walkthroughs and she's not smiling, she's not enjoying it. She ain't going to learn the skill anyway. So it's, you need to have all those three things. Yeah, that was, uh, that was going to be another question kind of answer already um in the podcast you did with rob anderson you mentioned how your spider fit coaches or yourself um are going to be almost like children or child entertainers could you just elaborate a little bit on that because i quite like that yeah well well you need to be a really smart entertainer that's really what what or a a better way to put is you got to be a kid that's just really really smart and really, really plan. That's the best way because you have to understand it. And I don't care if, you, if you're coaching, if you're marketing, if you're trying to communicate a message to people and you could be a, in business, you could be in business, it's marketing and coaching. You're trying to communicate a message to your, your, uh, your teams, you're a parent, you're trying to communicate to your kid. You have to make that message relevant. And with kids, the research on kids what is the most relevant thing to kids? And quite frankly, this expands beyond just, you know, like eight-year-olds. This is all the way up to about 17 years old. Fun is the most relevant thing to them. That's just data. So I, if I look at that and I say, okay, if, I, if I'm a coach or if I'm, a, uh, I'm in a business and I'm trying to communicate a message, whatever your role is and you're trying to communicate a message, to make it relevant to this demographic, to kids, it has to be fun. So if you're a coach with kids, you have to understand, you have to lead with that. If they're not having an enjoyable experience, it's all for nothing. And so that's, that's honestly what I lead with. And that's part of, you know, we all know that about kids. You know, we all know kids just, you know, they have so much energy, they like to have fun. But honestly, if we take a little bit more of a scaled, serious approach to it, well, the data suggests that fun is the primary objective for kids. So that's really where we should be coming. So then 
comes to you in program design, okay, skipping. How can we make skipping fun? Uh, a game, how can we make it fun? It doesn't mean that we need to make it a circus, but as coaches, we need to understand that if we're going to communicate effectively to kids, that needs to be part of the equation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And again, it, it's funny because as I said offline, um, my SNC experience was lucky enough to gain experience with uh, professional teams, uh, got experience with Olympic and Paralympic teams. But obviously that's a whole world away. For example, I remember when I went for a job interview at the first school that I taught at and I just delivered the warm up that I'd been delivering to professional cricketers. And I thought I'd done a great job. But now I look back on it, I'm like, oh, what were you doing? <laughs> Um, but it's so easy to think, well, the textbook says you need, I don't know, a ramp warm up, you need plyometrics. Um, what are some of the, uh, what are some of the key advice points you would give, for example, for SNC coaches who are perhaps from a more professional background who are thinking about transitioning either into the youth market or working in schools with kids? I think the first thing that, well, just kind of similar to, to play on to what I you know, said earlier is that you do have to understand that their motivations, their primary motivation is enjoyment and fun. And that's just way, that's the way their brain uh, is wired. You have to remember uh, that these kids, I'm about to make everyone's job easier with kids. They believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> so Right away, we got to understand that their concept of logic and their concept of a lot of things is very different than us as adults. <laughs> so if you're asking kid, why don't you understand this? Well, they believe in a, a man in a suit flying around the world in a sleigh, dropping off presents. I mean, we have to understand that. And that, that kind of clears up. It's like, oh yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. But it's also understanding that they're a child first an athlete second. And that's kind of hard for us to understand. If I'm a soccer coach, I'm like, well, they're coming to me because they want to learn soccer. So they're a soccer player. Their limitations in development as a child will prove to be greater determining factors than their limitations as a soccer player. And here's what I mean by that. So when a young child comes to us, Things like their perceptual motor skills, their growth velocity, their, their all of the developmental things and their psychology. It's in this plastic stage of development. And so they're, they're coming and it's like, we're, we're coming in at this point where it's like, okay, well, yeah, I want to teach them soccer. Well, that's great. But the foundation from which they're going to use these soccer skills might not be complete yet. You know, they might not be able to focus for longer than a minute at a time. And that's just because that's the way their brain works. They, their executive function within their prefrontal cortex doesn't allow for long periods. So once you go in and you say, well, I'm going to work with a bunch of, uh, you know, eight-year-old soccer players. You're going to work with a bunch of eight-year-olds. Make it engaging for eight-year-olds and then layer in the soccer piece. Don't start saying, okay, what are the soccer things I need to do? No, first, what do I need to do with eight-year-olds? Where are they at in development? Where are they at in their motivations? Where are they at um, in their physical abilities and limitations? I'm going to take that information and now I'm going to layer soccer into it. And then I need to make the whole thing enjoyable. And that's really, if we start thinking like that as coaches, it's going to make a lot more sense to us. Um, and we're not going to get frustrated. And, and another thing too is, 
that the process of successive approximation, if you're used to, if you're in the strength and conditioning world and you work with an athlete and you're like, okay, you're working with a collegiate university level athlete, or even an advanced high school, like a 16, 17 year old athlete, you're saying, okay, we're going to squat. Okay. Go down, squat. I'll get your knees by your toes, get your head up, flatten out that back, you know, pull your shoulders down that you're, we're giving them cues, cues, cues. And they're somewhat responding to these cues. So we can clean up a squat and teach a good squat in like a week or two, because we're just kind of building on to previously established movement patterns with kids. We might be the first organized. This is the first time they've organized this movement. We call out anatomy. They know what their knee is. They know what their spine is. They know what their hip is. But when we start relating them, get your knees behind your, your toes or, you know, flex your spine or, or strain on your hips, post your anterior tilt. They know what these things mean conceptually, but unless we break it down and we, so we have to slow down and we have to trust the process that we can day one on the squat. If they just drop their hips down to the ground, they can have a, a spine that looks like a question mark, you know, they, and they're beginning on their tiptoes, but if they drop their hips lower to the ground, now they understand when I say squat, they can approximate that motion. They know they just need to drop their hips lower to the ground. The next time we bring it up, the next time we practice it, eh, if they know all the lower their hips to the ground, let's keep your heels on the ground. One thing a day, but every day you're just moving slower and slower. So they're not overwhelmed or frustrated. You're not overwhelmed or frustrated. And as it, what's crazy, and I've seen this in my own eyes, as they get older, for one, vocabulary is everything. I all, one of the mistakes I made early on in my career is not spending enough time familiarizing kids just with movement vocabulary. Your, your limbs, just, just doing things, you know, touch your elbow, touch your knee, flex your knee, extend your knee, push your knees in front of your toes, push your knees behind your toes. Like just movement vocabulary. We don't give them enough introduction to this stuff. And then we just expect them to have this unbelievable body awareness. So you, we really are starting at zero with, with a lot of kids. So spend time on things that you don't think you need to spend time on body, body part, ID movement, vocabulary, all these things within the warm up. And then build these movement skills over the course of time. Don't overcoach. And, and if there's any piece of advice that would have saved me frustration is don't overcoach. If you're used to working with older kids, we can clean up movement in a day sometimes with the, the more physically aware. With younger kids, you got about one coaching cue per day. That's what you get. And you got to be okay with that. But once you see it play out, when you take that approach, once you see it actually play out, it's, it's pretty encouraging. It's really cool because you're like, I'm so glad I was patient with that because none of us are frustrated. The kids have actually taken ownership of it themselves because they've been allowed to, to, to develop it. Uh, so you know, those little things, I, I wish I would have had a clearer focus and, and awareness of earlier in my career because uh, it would have saved a lot of frustration on every end. Yeah, it's funny because um, I'm just thinking in my head of uh, a brilliant deceleration drill that I've stolen off you, the uh, edge of the earth drill. Um, oh, yeah. For people who are listening who haven't seen the drill, basically kids sprint up to some cones and then they've got to squat down without falling off the edge or going beyond the cones. And it'd be so easy for a strength and conditioning coach to watch that and be like, when are they ever going to squat down on the field of play? Um, which is then ironic because you could then say the same argument in the weight room. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh as you said give kids one thing and then layer it up from there 
Well, and part of it too, is if you can create, like, let's use that drill for an example. I can sit there and give them a laundry list of proper deceleration mechanics. And they're going to be like, I got to listen to him. He's a coach, but what does this have to do with anything? Well, but then all of a sudden you play that game. Like, Oh no, like I got to figure out, like they fall over the first couple of times. You're like, do you want, you want some advice on that? Do you want some help? Do you want to not fall? Bend your knees when you go up to it. So they run up and all of a sudden they, they lower their hips. Like, Whoa, I can do it now. I can run faster up to the cones and know that I can stop faster because I bend my knees in a squat. Well, now that they understand that, if we've built the lunge pattern, now we can go into a, a different deceleration pattern, but it's instead of, because quite frankly, most young kids can't even lunge. So why would I all of a sudden introduce this new thing? So it's, it's first, it builds relevance to them. And then we slowly build the movement skill because that thought process right there, you look at, well, they don't squat in the field. Well, kids don't do a lot of things on the field. <laughs> so you got to start somewhere, you know, mm. they don't skip on the field either, but skipping's a essential part of the, the rhythmic and the, all the different aspects, the, the, the proprioceptive and the rhythmic aspects, aspects of running Olympic athletes skip. So they're not skipping on the field. Well, yeah, but it's an important piece of the development model. So uh, that stuff is, is key. And it's funny because um, just in, again, reading and listening to some of your work where it talks about even doing stuff on each side of the body. I mean, my master's dissertation involved a change of direction test with cricketers who were 17 to 19 years of age. And in the pilot testing, nearly all of them fell over when doing a change of direction on their weaker leg. And you think yeah. these are like the best cricketers in the county for their age. And yet they can't change direction off their weaker leg. Like what's going on? Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned a couple of mi- uh, a minutes ago with the soccer example was that the limitations of the child will supersede the limitations of their soccer ability. Um before we dive into the uh, perceptual motor skills, fundamental movements, uh, et cetera, how would you determine whether, for example, a child's limitation is, and I'll give a little bit of context to this, because a lot of coaches will be like, oh, this child is not fit enough. Mm-hmm. And they won't really expand on what fit enough means to them, but yeah. they'll automatically assume it's a conditioning issue. And yeah. how do you determine whether, for example, a child is quote unquote, not fit enough, or it's just a case of perceptually they're not, they've not fully developed those skills, fundamental movement skills haven't developed. Yeah. How do you determine which one of those three or even what else it potentially could be? Well, for one, it's, it's developing a working knowledge of, of what are those skills? What are the fundamental movement skills? You know, first understanding that. And a lot of sports coaches don't necessarily understand that because they're not educated on that. It's just not in their general educational pedagogy to become a a sport coach, but understanding the fundamental movement skills and understanding the perceptual motor skills. That has been such a major thing for me as a coach. And so many of uh, in the spider fit community have commented on those perceptual motor skills. Understanding those is, is giving them so much data in assessing athletes on just as they're moving, just seeing like, Oh, well, you know, that athlete can't skip, but it's not so much a strength issue or a fitness issue. It's a temporal issue. It's just, they don't, they don't have a sense of rhythm. Like they can't clap back a rhythm or they can't identify a rhythm. So first step is understanding what you're looking at. You know, what are, what are the fundamental movement skills look like? And what are the underlying perceptual motor skills that you're looking at? But then the next thing is everything is an assessment. When, when I have kids, when, when that, that warm up piece should have, 
fundamental movement skills. You're looking at from a, how can they skip? Can they shuffle? Can they do some stationary movement controls? Do they have the basic concepts of squatting down, changing level? Can they, so I'm looking at all these different things. None of them necessarily have that. Like, I mean, even to doing the fundamental movement skills, there is somewhat of a strength component, but most of the time it's not so much that like, you know, they can't skip because they're out of breath. It's that they can't skip because they, either haven't been taught how to skip or they don't have the rhythmic capability or something like that. So in these little warmups that we're doing, they're doing all these skills. I'm looking at that as a coach. And if they're gassed, if they're just breathing hard, but they have the main constructs of all the skills, I'm not worried about that because in two weeks, they're not going to be gassed anymore. All they need to do is just do some repetition. Conditioning is pretty easy. So it starts with understanding what am I looking at? And then in my warmups or in conditioning, I am always looking at those skills first. Looking at, well, where, where are they struggling? Because most of the time, if, if, I mean, just because a kid can't skip doesn't mean they're not going to be able to play soccer. But I do want them to be able to skip because that's kind of a skill that is a pretty important building skill to some other things they will need in soccer. So I am going to start with that. Um, so everything is an assessment. I think once you're an educated coach, you understand movement, you're always looking, you're always looking at where are we at with this? And it doesn't need to be perfect. I'm not talking about perfect a skips with, you know, their arms and I'm talking about, do they got a contralateral movement pattern? Do they understand to come off the ground? Can they shuffle laterally without turning their hips? So they're pretty much just galloping. Can they, um, and that's, that's really what I'm looking for. And, and if I'm a soccer coach, we're still going to play soccer. But I'm going to be like, I really got to get these physical skills up if we're going to have the greatest opportunity to make them soccer players. And in terms of the um, so a question I had from a chap called Kevin Heary uh, when I said I was interviewing you for the podcast is so he'd read some of my work that I'd written on the perceptual motor skills, which, to be honest, was mainly based on your work that I'd read on the perceptual motor skills. Um, but he said he's heard of the fundamental movement skills. He's read a lot about it. Um, but he's never really come across the perceptual motor skills. Um, so his question was, why do you think that we hear a fair amount about fundamental movement skills, but you've almost got to really go looking for any work on the perceptual motor skills? That's probably the best question. And that is honestly, if, if anything has contributed to um, our ability to educate coaches all over the world and, and contributed to the, the success of the powerful play model with, with spider fit kids has been our work with that. And honestly, we came across, you know, I came across these perceptual motor skills in looking at, well, how do we build skills from nothing? You know, because a lot of kids are coming to us, they're deconditioned. They have no previous movement training, nothing. They're just showing up and they're just like, yeah, I don't even play, you know? And so it's looking at, okay, well, if kids are coming to us with zero, where do we start? And when we look into a lot of uh, physical education pedagogy and a lot of these different things, it starts with the fundamental movement skills, which it does start with the fundamental, but we're like, well, what if they can't do those? You know, what if they're extremely frustrated with learning how to skip or, and honestly, it was in some of our talks as we were formulating the model with occupational therapists, which you know they largely work with, with kids with movement pathologies or, uh, they, they have, you know, sensory disorders or, or, you know, uh, things like that. And they started talking about, well, a lot of these kids that we're seeing, their point was 
you know, traditionally the kids that we see kids that have um, some developmental um, latency or some, de- they're, they're not quite physically developed in certain areas and they come work with us and we're able to get them going. And there's some cognitive things they work with, but they said, based on their assessments, the percentage of kids that would be considered, you know, having pathology now based on old assessments of movement and, and would be very high. And so they said, Coaches and, 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 and PE teachers need to have some awareness of these sensory skills. And so we were turned on to these through occupational therapists and they, they would talk us through each one of these. And we saw how they worked with kids and working with as many kids as I have this it right away was just like a light went on. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is, this answers so many questions. And, you know, Vern Gambetta has brought the perceptual motor skills uh, to the forefront. He's mentioned those in his book and I'm blanking on the name of his, his book, but it's uh, the athletics. I haven't read it, but the athletic skills development model. Yes. Yes. Um, so w- with that, you know, he brings, he brings these into light. Now he doesn't talk about all of them, but he kind of ties some of them to some of these physical skills, like agility and, and speed and quickness and things like that. Um, so he, he mentions them there and he obviously had some understanding and there in uh, there's been some people that have forayed around it. But it, to me, it was such a solution to the challenges that I had had with young athletes that I was like, I found gold. This is, this is so valuable to me as a coach. And I've gotten so much, it's so outside of the box of what we're usually you know, trained to understand that so many coaches have said the same thing. It's like, you know, developing an understanding of those. And, and I'm not just talking about kids. I mean, working with adults, with, with, with the high level athletes, a lot of the issues they have, we look at purely like, okay, why is the runoff? Oh, their arm is here. Absolutely true. But understanding the deeper mechanisms, it's sort of like understanding the puppeteer that, that runs the, the marionette, understanding what goes on with that puppeteer. That's what the perceptual motor skills are. So it's, you know, body awareness. Like I said, I discovered body ID was one of the weakest things with the kids that they understood the the parts of the body, but it's like, once it got to relating them and these different movement things, I was, they didn't understand it. So body awareness, directional awareness. I mean, do we spend time, make sure kids know right from left before we go out and we're yelling field commands and doing all these different things. And uh, do, do kids have, you know, spatial awareness? Do they understand the, 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 how much space their body takes up and how much space is available to move? These are things that used to be, and, and, you know, very much to your point of, why, why haven't, you know, what's the importance of them? Why haven't we learned them? Because quite frankly, kids used to develop these from just running around all day long, climbing trees, rolling down hills, throwing you know, dirt clods at each other and, and doing all these. That was part of just being a kid. You just did this stuff and, and you played all the time. And so it was pretty much, you showed up to PE, to physical education, and they knew that, or you'd been laboring in the fields with your parents and you'd been doing all this your random stuff. And so you developed all these skills and now a PE teacher just has to be like, Oh, well, you have basic visual awareness and spatial awareness, proprioceptive awareness, and all these different things. Let's hone those into these different skills. You have the skills of learning readiness. Now let's, let's learn. You know, now you're going to skip and you're going to do these different things. Now kids are coming to us and they really haven't done anything. So their sense, their, their senses don't give them good feedback to create motor responses to so it's just sort of like they see something they feel something but they don't know what to do with that data it's funny because just hearing you speak about it there um there's a a boy in one of my classes that immediately springs to mind and uh 
we're teaching them basketball and I've noticed he almost tries to shy away. But when the ball gets thrown at him, he'll put his hands up, not to catch it, but to block it, hitting his face. And uh, anyway, then took him out of the game whilst the game carried on. I was like, me and you are going to practice catching. And I just had him do a drill where he throws the ball against the wall to then catch it. So he determines how fast the ball moves, not somebody throwing it. And even then he was scared of the ball. And I thought, is this because, for example, you're proprioceptively underdeveloped? Like you don't know how to put in enough force. You don't know what's a big yeah. force for the little one. And like, are you visually underdeveloped that you'll see the ball late? Um, does the brain not talk to the hands? And he puts his hands up across his face rather than to catch the ball by yep. his chest. And there's all these things that I'm thinking about. And immediately I'm thinking this isn't in a traditional mindset. You might just be like, oh, this kid just can't play sport. But I'm yeah. thinking one level deeper and thinking, right, what data have we got on this kid? Is his vision developed? Is his proprioception developed um, and other things? And how do we include him in that lesson without other kids being, oh, I don't want that kid on my team. He can't play. And that for me, like you were saying earlier about the joy of coaching kids, when you deliver a session where that kid feels just as involved as the kid who's been playing basketball for three years, that is when you've, and I'm not saying I'm there yet by any stretch, but that is the level of satisfaction I get from designing a session that allows that to happen is much more than getting somebody who, I don't know, they back squat a hundred kilos for the first time or whatever. Well, improvement is improvement. You know, we, we love seeing improvement over athletes, but you know, to your point, and that's exactly you know the, what you just said there about the perception motor skills. When you see this challenge, this kid can't catch the ball and he's blocking. That's exactly where I saw the value of the perception motor skills is being able to say, okay, wait a minute, I can assess this in a different way. And quite frankly, most of the time in that specific scenario, it's something to do visually. It's a spatial and visual awareness issue. Like the, the you, gotta, you have to understand that eyeballs not even round till you're nine. <laughs> so once things start moving, uh, the macula, the retina isn't even your ability to focus on things close up isn't even really mature till about six or so. So it's like you understand that there's these actual sort of equipment limitations and some kids they excel and they, they but these kids are on different trajectories. So when you understand these underlying skills, you can look at movement like you just did and you can create opportunities. You'd be like, oh, well, it's a visual thing. So then you can be like, okay, well, maybe the, the basketball is too unforgiving. So you can show him something else, but tell him, okay, I want you to focus on this little dot, you know, as I throw it to you. So then he can train the vision piece. And so then all of a sudden his vision becomes more acute. And with kids, vision is probably, well, not probably, I mean, statistically, I mean, when we are young and really throughout life, vision is our primary sense. We are using vision ed to inform almost everything. So with kids, a lot of times in a situation like that, it's going to be something to do with vision. So instead of just being like, ah, oh, they're uncoordinated, they're not trying. No, it's, we can work on that vision. That's a skill. Understanding that vision is a skill that we can, you know, theoretically, unless he has a, you know, issue with the eyes but then again with that maybe there is an issue with the eyes you might you know highlight that maybe the kid kid gets glasses and all of a sudden he's dribbling catching doing all that stuff so it's it's just a way it's a better way to assess our athletes and, and keep them moving forward yeah and like you said it's it's a productive conversation that i i will ha- I follow up with parents and say look it's not it's not about whether they can catch a ball it's not how good he can play basketball it's that i'm concerned there might be underlying things and they may well turn around and say oh we've known this for years you know whatever um but it is useful to have those kind of conversations rather than as you said if you ring a parent up who 
isn't a sporty parent and so they can't play basketball, they're probably going to be like, how's this going to affect him later in life? He's not going to the NBA. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, I'm just going to see what other questions I've got in terms of the perceptual motor skills. Um, one of the things I have got uh, in my mind is, as you said, when we deal with collegiate athletes or high-level athletes, it's very easy to get focused on the numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Have you got any thoughts about how, let's say, if you'd convinced a P department to go with a more movement-based curriculum, or not a movement-based curriculum, but should we say movement-centered, yeah. and then the sport is the accessory, how would you measure or um, prove to senior leadership members that your decision to tweak the curriculum is being beneficial, if that makes sense? Especially so we've done that. Say again? We've done that. We've okay. done that with the whole school district, uh, 12,000 kids. And wow. they, they had received a large grant, multi-million dollar grant. And their director of physical education for the district he wouldn't, he refused to let them buy any equipment until they had a framework for how they would change. Because what they had done is they'd received million dollar grants in the past. They just bought a bunch of new equipment and nothing had changed. And then the equipment, you know, breaks and they have to get rid of it. And it's just not a, so we came in and we looked at, and we, we saw this sort of, um, you know, sports forward type of thing, which the coaches and the, and the teachers love because they could roll a ball out and then they would go kind of on the bleachers and work on their basketball plays, you know, cause they'd be basketball coaches or baseball coaches or whatever. Well, we were very disruptive because we came in and said, well, this is not a, look at the data, look at the problems we're having in the country. Like this is, this model's not working. So we, we went in and they're like, well, how are we going to assess? Like right now we use the presidential fitness test. We use all these benchmark tests that want an aerobic fitness. And then like, if you don't, if we don't see improvements on those, then you know, so they're like, we have to have the kids running laps every day. We have to have the kids like doing these um, because this is the benchmarks. We said, okay, well, we have to hit those benchmarks, but we're going to hedge our, we're going to hedge our bet in the fact that if we can teach, if we can use our internal criteria, quality of movement, then that quantity and, and, you know, that thing, that's just going to improve. And that's exactly what we saw. So we did, we created a very much, very similar to uh, like the, the, functional movement, you know, screen, we created more of a, we call it the core four. We looked at skipping. We looked at squatting. We looked at a, a push-up plank. So just being able to hold a push-up plank and we looked at crawling now, and this was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And this was just on the spot. You know, the, these things need to be hashed out over time, but uh, and we, we don't work as much in the school systems anymore. Um, but, uh, but, but this was, so it was like, okay. And then we created this huge dichotomy of how coaches can give these scores on these movements. So then all of a sudden assessment drives programming. So now their programming is based on how do we teach kids how to move better? So now their warmups were more uh, purposeful. Now they're trying to teach the kids these things in warmups and during conditioning. And they even added some new classes. So they're kind of movement forward type of classes versus the old model of, and then they, then after this, then they reformatted their whole gyms to be like boxes kids climbed over and did, it was this whole process. Well, their school just blew it out of the water when it came to these, they, they improved. I think that it was I forget that uh, it was like 30 or 40% improvement across the board in these metrics of, of center. So focusing on the quality of movement gave the kids the confidence and then the competence to, to 
get a better quantity of movement. And it just reinforced our theories and, and reinforced our notions and really reinforced what you'll find if you look at the, the data. Well, it, it's funny you say that because I remember um, I interviewed for a PhD project, wasn't successful, but it was to do with um, an intervention with secondary school children and improving physical literacy. And the case study that I presented as part of the interview, uh, I had an 11-year-old kid and I thought I'm deliberately not going to do, even though he, even if he does move well enough, we're not going to have him lift a single weight just to see how his jump scores react. And uh, his jumps blew out the water. And literally, we just we played games. Um, for, I remember designing a sort of a progression through play pathway was what I called it. But it was just exploring squatting movements, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, to steal an analogy of Shane Fitzgibbons, uh, he said, if you were trying to cycle a bike as fast as you could and you had your hands on the brakes, would you pedal harder or just take your hands off the brakes? Yeah, it's a great it's a great analogy. I know Shane well, too. He's he's awesome. (laughs) But that's a great analogy. And uh, on that subject, do you, um, on the subject of strength training, um, so something that you've said is that strength training before puberty is just motor learning. Do you think that uh, as strength and conditioning coaches, we're sometimes too eager to load something as soon as it looks good enough for us to justify loading it, if that makes sense? Yeah, because we, we see that like we see that as progression. We forget about the under, because we can see it. You know, we, our job is progression. And so we see progression as things that we can visually see. So if a kid is squatting at their body weight and they get good at it and we can see them holding on to something heavy, then we have progressed them. What we don't see is the underlying neural mechanisms that, that, uh, okay. So of a myelination and being able to, you know, uh, snap to Genesis and all these things that happen behind the scenes that kids do need repetitions to really lock in a movement. I am all for progressing in any way that you can. But again, with kids, that while we progress a collegiate athlete or university level athlete, we progress them weekly, you know, because they've, we've taught them these skills. With kids, progression should be over. They need to develop mastery. They need to, to you know, they're myelinating. So, if, if that squat movement is going to be sealed in, they need to do it a lot and they need to do it well. And they need to feel confident. And yes, loading is part of that whole model, but you have to understand that it doesn't need to happen right away. We don't want them getting bored. We don't want them getting complacent. We don't want, but it, that shouldn't be the first thing you do is, Oh, he did it right for five reps. So here, hold on to this. It, it's, we have to understand that there's, there's, it does take a long time. The more volume we can give them where they're doing things correctly, the better. Yeah. It's uh, something I've uh, played about with, with um, some of the uh, young females I used to work with was supersetting something like a goblet squat, which we would progress through load with um, something like a, a frogger or a monkey. If you've ever seen uh, GMB fitnesses work with a sort of crawling type squatty pattern. And I just found that, that was enough to distract them from the goblet squat, which they didn't really want to do. Yeah. But even the, because it was sort of repetition without repetition, that seemed to improve their learning. And also it meant that the squat pattern didn't just fall apart because I don't know, one week they've forgotten the key points, as you've mentioned. 
hundred percent. And that, that's the whole thing. It's, it's the repetition piece. And sometimes you gotta be creative about it. <laughs> Instead of doing 20 goblet squats, do 10 goblet squats, but then do another drill. That's not the goblet squat, but is going to reinforce the mechanics of the squat and they'll get the volume that way. And again, and then to go back to while you're going through this process, coach, but don't overcoach. If, if they're, you got to let them like, you got to let them. And then instead of saying, Hey, get your butt down. Like, how does that feel when you come back with straight legs or how does it feel? What do you feel when you come down? Where do you think your knees are? Where do you feel your knees are when you come down? Where do you feel like it's, it's letting them be their own coach. And, and yeah, sometimes you just need to give a direct cue and just do it. But if you get the opportunity, ask them, communicate, because they are their best. They and their peers are way better coaches than you are. <laughs> That's just the truth. You know, yeah. if they can, if they can feel their body and if, if, if they can peer coach and help each other, they're going to respond much more than us sitting yelling at them. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And just on the subject of these sort of, uh, coordination variations of the movement versus let's just load it for a strength variation of the movement um a bit of a random question i guess if you were to um design a study let's say because what i find with a lot of research that i read i'm like oh this is interesting but and it tells me like the sort of background but it doesn't necessarily influence what i'm going to do monday morning um Mm. if you were to design a study which was for example we're going to take one group of young athletes and have them do coordination variations of say a squat pattern or whatever and we're going to take another group and just goblet squat them and increase progress through the load uh how would you design that study in terms of what metrics you would look for and to try i guess try and prove which one was better or which combination of both was better if that makes sense the difficult part there is is defining load because Load, you think of all the, the variables when it comes to load and movement complexity, movement velocity. Uh, you just so, so you would really have to identify what you would have to do is identify okay, well, we're going to do goblet squat versus uh, jumping on a different heights of boxes. So you got a um, overcoming a force issue, you know, overcoming an external load issue versus a joint velocity force issue. Um, you could, it would be very hard to just say, oh, well, this is a coordination movement and goblet squats aren't a coordination. Goblet squats are a highly coordinated movement. So you would have to break down the different variables and start to compare them. So you could say, well, this one's going to increase in movement complexity. That's going to be the load. Movement complexity is usually what we um, give the term coordination. You know, oh, coordination, you got to do more stuff. You got to do harder stuff. I mean, but a concise term for that movement complexity. So you could say, okay, well, let's look at increasing load of, uh, let's look at just increase, increasing um, you know, load against gravity, essentially, versus increasing neural load of movement complexity. Compare those two. Then be like, okay, well, they this one, they had to do a squat and then, um, you know, go to one leg at the bottom. You know, it turns into a pistol squat or a squat into a push-up and then back up or whatever. That's just movement complexity. That's how we define that. Um, versus that. So you'd compare that. Then you'd be like, okay, let's compare um, increased movement complexity to increased movement velocity. So a jump versus a, um, so you'd have to compare those. You couldn't, I don't think you'd get really impactful data if you're just say, okay, lifting weights versus, you know, not lifting weights. If there's too many other variables up in the air there. No, I, I like that a lot. And it's funny because uh, it sort of taps into, um, one of the, I guess, problems I've been having recently. So I mentioned to you off air about um, writing chapters for my youth athlete ebook. And one of the chapters, I mean, 
I've gone through breaking down each quality, but then the difficulty is they all basically interrelate. So one of the chapters is on balance training. And the first thing I've said is that it's a bit of a misnomer because it implies that, oh, well, you can't do any strength work until you've done your balance work. But actually, if you're stronger, you'll find it easier to balance. If, for example, you've developed that movement map that we spoke about, then balance work's going to be easier. Um, And actually, it's very difficult being like, right, this is the starting point. And uh, even going back to the perceptual motor skills thing, um, in one of the blogs I wrote, I said that it's very easy to see uh, the nine different perceptual motor skills and think, oh my God, where am I going to start? But actually, and I suppose this is another question on my sport model um, question with PE, is that you could almost argue that a lot of sport well, inherently will develop some of the perceptual motor skills by default. Oh, 100%. I mean, the, our job, we are not occupational therapists. like, And that's the whole thing. I, I, I think that we need to to have it my our approach to what we recommend is not so much you go in and like okay today we're just going to develop visual awareness and that's all we're going to do well you can't i mean they all work together anyway so it's not so much so as coaches we just need to understand what these underlying perceptual motor skills understand these mechanisms and then as we like to your example of of they're playing with the ball well we have them play a ball game but when we're seeing how certain kids excel and certain kids are struggling then that's when we bring our knowledge of the perceptual motor skills in and say, okay, wait a minute, where are they, you know, if they've not been introduced to this, uh, is it that there's a visual thing or whatever? And then go from there versus we're not going to go in and all of a sudden just be like, okay, today we are just going to do temporal awareness. And I mean, that's that right there. It's more like do your programming, but then understand why you're doing it and understand what you're looking for with that. You could do a skip every day and you're looking at that skip through the, the lens of the perceptual motor skills and just saying, okay, do they have the rhythm? Do they have the uh, you know, movement precision? Do they have the, the body awareness to respond to coaching cues? It, it's, it's more the knowledge, do your thing. But then when it comes to creating corrections or progressions or, or regressions, then you have that information. I think uh, on the subject of, for example, should P be more movement-based, I think in my mind, that's almost one of the pushbacks I imagine in the sense of, oh, what are we going to do? Just go in and be like, oh, uh, rather than, I don't know, football, rugby, cricket, our curriculum is now visual awareness, vestibular awareness and proprioceptive awareness. Well, but if you look at like, and we, and we took that into account because I could see, I'd ask that question. <laughs> I mean, I'd ask that question. It's like, wait a minute. But let's say you create a circuit you know, you're creating a circuit here. And one of the stations is the kids are dribbling through a ball and then shoot on a goal. Uh, another station is they're throwing, you know, medicine balls in the air. Another one is it's all, another one. They have to, you know, get, throw a ball into a cup. Uh, another one, they have to uh, you know, d- respond to cues or go fast, slow, medium. Those are integrating all the perceptual motor skills. But if I'm a coach and I go around, and I see one kid's not responding. You know, they can't seem to throw the ball into a cup. Okay. Well, instead of just being like, well, try harder. Okay. I'm going to be like, okay, well, how could I do a corrective intervention here? I need to understand, is it vision? Is it uh, kinesthetic differentiation? Do they not understand that, uh, you know, kids have a problem saying, okay, what's a soft throw? What's a hard throw? What's a, um, that's a proprioceptive thing. So it's, it, it, it's letting the kids do all the stuff, but then just looking at these things, having just another tool as coaches to help with, with, with helping them. 
Well, it's funny. One thing you said there about fast, medium, slow is um, another example that I found in coaching kids that's made me tune in more to the perceptual motor skills is if we do something like, I don't know, rounders or shot put, they'll try and launch the implement or hit the ball as hard as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. But then when you go to something like tennis, they don't have the proprioceptive awareness to, for example, dial it back to guide the ball. The ball will just, you know, almost like they've hit it for six. Um, And I love your little soccer analogy earlier that the limitations will be the limitations of the child, not their limitations as a tennis player, soccer player, whatever. Yeah. Well, and that's really what it is. And if we start to look at it like that as coaches, it doesn't matter what sport you coach or physical education or whatever. Once we look at them as children first, our understanding of their physiology and their psychology is going to expand so much that it becomes so much easier to, to layer in these the, the specific skill work of sports. Yeah. And uh, going back to your Santa Claus quote, another one I saw on Twitter that I quite liked uh, was from a guy who teaches uh, kindergarten P in America. And he said, uh, normally he wouldn't say this, but he said, lower your expectations. These kids have only been walking for four years and you're yeah. trying, you're trying <laughs> to introduce true. a sport. All of it's true. I mean, imagine like, you know, I, I played soccer my, my whole life. And, and if someone asked me how long you've been playing, so oh, I played it for 20 years. Jeez. Imagine being like, how long have you been playing? Oh, well, I learned about it today. <laughs> you know, I, I learned that it existed today what would that do to your abilities? And we have to take that into consideration. Yeah. But it's just, just funny when you, we, we spoke about curriculum design and how kids, when they've come through the sport model, they're conditioned to asking, Oh, what are we doing today? And they expect to hear a sport back. Whereas imagine if, for example, they'd been introduced to donor sports or something that was football like or tennis like, um, and they just don't realize that this is just building skills for something else they would just be like, oh, what are we doing? And you could name a game rather than a sport. Yeah. And it's only a subtle difference, but by not being pigeonholed into, for example, foot soccer has to be 11 aside, tennis has yeah. to be played across a net. Um, you know, you open up so many possibilities for those kids who haven't actually encountered formal sport. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, one of the eye openers for me and where we were at in America with, with kids playing and interacting with sports is I took a big group of kids and we'd had a great little workout. We'd done this at the end. I was like, well, let's play soccer. And I just literally took a ball and I, I counted off teams and I rolled a ball out and two kids went and ran for the ball. The rest of them stood there. And I said, well, what's the deal? I don't know what position I am. And so then like they literally, they were frozen because they didn't, a coach wasn't there to say, Hey, you have to play this position and be like, well, just do whatever. Well, I'm a defender. What, what do you mean? You're defender. You're eight. <laughs> you're nothing. You're, you're a kid that go chase the ball. Like, and so that just really opened my eyes to, wow, this is what we're creating here. And this is, it's, it's problematic. Yeah. And you know, just, just to add to that, like I've, worked with people before who'd be like oh you'll be a good shooter you're tall and it's just like that kid hasn't experienced movement just because they're tall doesn't mean or you'll get the going back to the growth mindset uh i had kids in my class be like how am i meant to defend this person she's really tall and i'm really short and i'm just like how have you or how has no one corrected or at least given you advice as to how you can utilize? I mean, again, my knowledge of basketball isn't great, but somebody yeah. told me that someone in the NBA can dunk at five foot nine or five foot eight or something oh, ridiculous. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a bunch of them. I mean, we're, 
was it Muggsy Bogues was like five foot one or five foot two or something like five foot three, like very short and he could dunk it. I mean, that's definitely something I'm going to have to YouTube later. I love the idea of that. Um, I'm just uh, flicking through some of the uh, questions that I've got left. Um, so 60 ways to play. Uh, firstly, talk to me about what that is and then explain why you felt the passion and need to create it. So we, as we started working with these different organizations and schools, we were working very broadly, you know, in, in educating their teachers or educating their coaches. And at the end of the day, the coaches appreciated the, the expansion of the way they looked at it and the knowledge, but they're like, well, what do we do? You know, what does this mean? Like, I need a, a plan. And so we, we created the 60 plays, ways to play guide. And we, we did it in a way that was very coach friendly. So you didn't even have to have the spider fit education to understand what you did and what you do. And we have our, our the way we recommend doing warmups to, to reinforce all the skills we talked about was we use a combination of called creative discovery and guided discovery. So creative discovery is we just throw out words or chains of words to kids and they got to put them together in a movement way. So we might say, all right, everybody, uh, shake, roll, spin, and then run. And they have to put all those together. They have to shake, then roll, then spin, then run. And they just keep doing that over and over again. And we just give them these novel movement problems to solve. And so it just, they like it, it's fun, but they have to, they're getting these coordination things down. And then we do what we call guided discoveries where we take them through familiar movements and then we just add movement variables. So we'll say, okay, let's go and skip. Now skip with your body wide, skip with your body narrow. And so this has been our approach. And there's a lot of different reasons that, that we recommend that. And so what this 60 ways to play is it's now 70, but uh, it's called 60 ways, but it's 70 different warm up and exercise circuits that utilize this creative discovery and guided discovery to help kids improve coordination, to help them improve uh, their proficiency with the, the fundamental movement skills to, to ignite the perceptual motor skills. Uh, but it's just, it's a good resource for coaches. I talk about those box ends of the beginning and the end of practice. It's something that you can use to begin your practice. You know that the kids are getting all the fundamental movement skills. You're challenging them. Uh, you're improving all the metrics you want to improve, but it's just right there. And then you can use another one at the end as sort of a conditioning thing where they, and it, but it's just a guide for coaches. It's illustrated. So you literally can see how it works. We include a ton of video so you can actually go to the different video um, things to see how things work. So it, uh, and, and it has been our most popular resource globally. I mean, in, in the States, we partner now with seven of the national governing bodies for USA sports. Um, so this is through the, the U S Olympic committee. Um, I, I have a relationship with them. I went and spoke at a conference and now we work with, and that was the first resource that they wanted to. And so now we work with them. We partner with them. We license these resources to them. They put their branding on it and they distribute it to their coaches as part of their athletic development model. So now all the coaches for USA football, USA lacrosse, USA fencing, USA speed skating, uh, USA field hockey, all of their coaches have access to all of our, to uh, not only 60 ways to play, but to powerful playground, which is our database of all of our activities. There's like 300 activities on there. It's a searchable database all of their coaches through these national organizations have access, you know, hundreds of thousands of coaches have access to this information for their young kids. So now they can have this long-term athletic development model within their national governing body. And so that's really, uh, it's been a huge success. And as you said, hugely practical, because it's so easy to talk about the science of perceptual motor skills. And as you said, 
coaches sitting there with who haven't heard of it just like tell me what to do give me something I can use on Monday as well as obviously all the interesting background to it yeah and that's exactly where it came in so we're excited and uh, in terms of your youth physical literacy specialist qualification um, this is something that unfortunately it clashed with um, another CPD I was doing but Shane's wax lyrical about it. Andy Bruce, who I've had on the podcast, was yeah. very complimentary. Um, firstly, how would you describe it? And my second part would be, how does it differ from, for example, um, stuff like what uh, is in Masters with the strength and conditioning, where it's just talking about, uh, I don't know, how important strength is for youth athletes. Yeah. How, how does it differ from, uh, I suppose, the more technical side of things, yeah. if that's fair to say? 100%. I mean, and I... In coming in, first of all, the, the reason we created the Youth Physical Literacy Specialist certification was so many coaches uh, have, have responded to, to really the, the methodology, the powerful play methodology and what we've done. And so I wanted to share the whole thing. Like this is literally, you know, if, if you're a coach that works with kids, this is how you can uh, look at the whole 360 degree model of a child. And this is how you can look long-term at their development. And th- these are the specifics, the things you need to know physiologically, psychologically, all these different things. And so we created a, a you know, it's a live certification. We've certified people uh, from in Canada, in the United States, in Malaysia, uh, and in Europe as well, you know, going to Shane's place in, in Ireland. And now because of COVID, we've moved it online, which is actually going to expand um, it's something we've wanted to do for a long time. Now we've been able to do it. So it's going to expand um, the number of coaches that can have access to the entire uh, SpiderFit library and pedagogy. Um, so there's, you're going to see a lot of SpiderFit coaches out there with this knowledge with and with this application. Now, where it differs from uh, more academia is I highly value uh, academia. I highly value all of that. And that's why even in the youth physical literacy specialist training, everything is based on research. It's not, oh, here's some cool exercises I found. Uh, but, and it doesn't, so where it differs is it just gets very specific to application. What exactly do you need to know to give these kids a positive experience, to give them a safe experience, to give them experience uh, to which they're, it's gonna be effective, their, their skills are gonna improve that's really where we're coming. That's the first thing we're concerned with in the, in the youth physical literacy is application. How do you create a program, whether it's physical uh, education, whether it's sports, whether it's your fitness professional, how do you create a program that's engaging and effective? How do you communicate that to your community? How exactly do you take all this other knowledge that we very much recommend that you, lots of the, the other general knowledge about the importance of strength training and all these other things, but then what does that mean uh, for this, you know, your goals of impacting youth and, and, and the feedback we've gotten after they've gotten certified and being able to go into their communities, the feedback we've gotten, they're just like, oh my gosh, I've been able to you know, grow my program because I understand what's important now. And uh, so it's been a really, you know, another really successful thing we've enjoyed. And uh, you, you mentioned there obviously about taking more of it online. Um, something I enjoyed, I mean, a lot of UK is going back into lockdown now, but something I enjoyed when the lockdown was first introduced um, was watching your online uh, PE lessons. Uh, I absolutely loved them. And many of the ideas that seem to work with six-year-olds also seem to work pretty well with uh, some of the older kids I work with. But for PE teachers who 
are going to have to start teaching online um, with lockdown uh, being reintroduced. Do you have any advice for whether it's a live lesson or indeed whether it's a pre-recorded lesson, which would go to a mixed ability class? Do you have any uh, general advice for that? For one, just go to SpiderFit Kids on YouTube. We put all of the, our PE classes on there. Uh, but a couple general guidelines for virtual. Uh, for one, understand that kids in that virtual world, virtual world's weird. All of a sudden they're staring at a camera. That's weird. So you have to be engaging on the camera. The easiest way to be engaging is to change your depth to the camera. So just us talking here, if I was talking to kids, I would be here. I'd be going like this, then I'm here because it's, it's, it's different. It's like, oh, this little metal glass box is interacting with me. So change your depth to the camera. Don't set up static in a corner and just talk and expect kids are going to, to do that. But also understand visual is everything with kids. Kids are very visual. So the more visual you can bring in, and also if you're working with kids and you're doing if you can have a child on the video with you, if that is at all an option, you will increase engagement tenfold. Kids love seeing other kids. And, you know, I learned that with my online PE. As soon as my daughter started going to summer camps, uh, we saw a decrease in viewership. We just did because people like to see, you know, kids wanted to see, you know, spider Fit Kid Maddie with me. And they didn't see that. And so it just, it, all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, this adult's talking to me and I like this adult, but it's not as interesting. So you know, those couple little things, and we've written some blogs. If you want to look at spiderfitkids.com, we've written some blogs on virtual engagement, uh, which, which are helpful, but just, just understand that a static, you gotta, you gotta make it interesting. And the easiest way to make it interesting is if you're going to say something, come up to the camera and say it, and then back up again, because the kids are saying, oh, wow, this person's you know, talking to me and interacting with me. They're not just reading off a clipboard. Um, but, and there's so many activities that you can do right in your living room. Use that we just created blogs for uh, activities for your living room, uh, equipment you can use. So if you're a PE teacher and and you're concerned about, well, there's no equipment. Well, yeah, they don't have cones and all that, but they have cups, they have plastic cups. They got pillows that are great balance tools. They got all these different things. Uh, so we have resources for that. So check it out on our powerful playground site. We've now included virtual friendly activities in our activity database. So members have access to that. They have access to our what we call non-traditional equipment activities. So that's where it's like, you're using what the kids probably have at home uh, to do a lot of the things that, that, you know, you've done, you know, previously when, when you weren't at home. So. No, that's, that's brilliant. And I'll, I'll find them and I'll chuck them in the show notes. And as nice. I said, e- even in watching your videos, like uh, for anyone listening, uh, like you've had several themes like <laughs> beach day, uh, your pet. Um, I've, I've absolutely loved them. I've watched them and thought if I was a kid, this, this is so much better than right. Push your knees out, get your hips down. Yeah. Like, well, the, all those things too were, and and we don't think that as adults, but like, you know, every Wednesday is uh, dress up as a, you know, whatever day that just gets the kids excited to show up. They're already engaged when they show up. So it, just thinking outside the box, remember they believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> how are you going to make, you know, that that's, so how are you going to make this engaging for a mind that believes in, in stuff like that? And you know, it's, it's just being creative with that process. 
Yeah, I, as I said, uh, very impressed with the content you have been putting out there. And uh, did well, three questions in uh, in wrapping up. Uh, one I asked to everyone who comes on is if you could spend a period of time with uh, one coach or one teacher um, with them and their athletes or their children, uh, who would you choose to observe and spend time with and why? It's hmm. a very good question. You know, I... You know, if I think about it, from the general concept of coaching, that commitment to coaching, here in the United States, our university sports system is very robust. You know, the university sports system, there's a lot of money in it. And there's some coaches that have just emerged as being able to create not only amazing teams, but, you know, character within those teams. And and, uh, so there's a coach here, uh, Mike Krzyzewski, and he coaches it and He's a the coach of a legendary university, um, uh, you know, Duke basketball. They just, they're legendary. And just his, you know, the stories you hear about him and his ability to communicate to his players and his ability to, to demonstrate compassion, yet um, being able to have firm convictions as well. So he's disciplined, but also compassion. I would, I just think that would be fascinating to see because, I think that I could um, you know, bring that down to the level of kids. And then uh, Mr. Are you familiar with Mr. Rogers? Is that? Uh, uh, yes. Yes. I've, I've, well, I've, I've seen the clip trailers for the film. Yes. So he's another one because he's not a coach, but he understands the spirit and the motivations and the, um, the vulnerabilities of children as an adult better than anybody I've ever heard of. And I think it would just be fascinating to see him and his interactions and, and how he approaches communicating with children because he is so effective. Um, but, you know, those two people, and I'm sure, you know, given time, I, I think of more, but those two people come to mind is, you know, when I see Coach Krzyzewski and I hear stories about him, I just think, boy, I'd like to follow him around for a week and see, you know, he just breathes it, you know, and, and that would be, as a coach, I would love to see that. And then, you know, with, with Fred Rogers, I'd love to see, boy, that compassion and, and his communication is amazing. Yeah, I, I like those answers just because it's so easy to get stuck into. Oh, I'd like to see what sets and reps this person does or what exercise yeah. variation, but it's it goes so much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you could uh, recommend a resource, a book, a podcast, uh, an app, um, if you could recommend one resource, uh, what would it be? You know, I, I get asked this a lot and there's I can honestly say that where I've been benefit is so many mentors, so many resources, so many, it all started though. I have to, Joseph Drabic's book, children in sports training. And I'll, uh, I'll chuck a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes as well. And uh, finally, one, uh, one key take home for anyone listening to the podcast. One key take home is, Remember that they're children first, athletes second. Perfect. If we can always remember that, you'll be good. Perfect. And in terms of reach out to, obviously you've said where people can find uh, the resources that you've uh, put out there. Um, what about getting in touch with yourself? Yeah, if you can get in touch, I mean, you can message, go to SpiderFit Kids on Facebook. Make sure you're following us. We post at least once a day, whether it's research or videos or whatever it is. Uh, go and message us there. 
Uh, you can also, uh, Brett at spiderfitkids.com. Um, if you have quite frankly, messaging me through Facebook, you'll probably get a faster response. I get a lot of emails and quite a, a lot of the time, just emails get bumped in the queue. And it's not because I don't want to return them or see them. It's just that I, sometimes I, I don't keep up with all of them. So um, messaging us again, messaging us through Facebook is the fastest way to get a response, but also feel free to, to send me an email. Brilliant. Well, as I said, I'll make sure the um, uh, powerful play and all the other resources that you've mentioned are in the show notes. Um, but just while we wrap up recording online, I just want to say uh, thanks very much. Thank you, Ty. Keep doing your great work. Thank you very much. I'll chat to you offline in a second. Awesome. Thank you for listening to episode number 27 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Brett Clicker. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could make the time to leave us a review via your preferred podcast platform and share this podcast with teachers, coaches, and anyone who you believe wants to perform at their highest level. If you have enjoyed the show and would like to find out how to support the show, you can head over to my Patreon page at www patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching. In exchange for supporting the podcast, you'll get exclusive access to strength conditioning educational content that I've created, including programs, my calisthenics kids lessons, and my technique Tuesday analysis, where you can submit videos of your movement technique, be it barbell lifting or calisthenics, and I will happily evaluate this for you and provide feedback as to how I would improve it. Thank you for listening and in episode number 28 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'll be interviewing the author of the Strength and Conditioning Handbook for Combat Sports, Jeffrey Chu. Thank you again for tuning in and I will catch you again in the next episode. Yeah.